Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. How many still sit in darkness and in the shadow of death externally? But there is a universality of reach in the command, go and preach the gospel to every creature. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today we're listening to a sermon by John Duncan, nicknamed John Rabbi Duncan. It was preached in Glasgow, Scotland in the year 1840. Troy, I have a thunderstorm going on outside my window, so if if you hear... Uh, rain or or thunder, the show must go on. We're just gonna, we're just gonna Absolutely. roll through that, but um, it's our first good thunderstorm awesome. of spring. Yeah, I I'm glad you have a thunderstorm. I when I lived in Kansas City, I feel like we had an amazing couple thunderstorms the first couple weeks we had moved back and I was all excited I was like yeah this is great we have a beautiful window for seeing them and then it didn't hardly rain again. And where I lived, it would rain around where I lived, but it didn't rain where I lived almost at all the entire time I was there. And I was um, wildly frustrated. Now I moved to a country where it just rains constantly. So it's nice that it's on your end this time, the rain do you problem. Do you get like, I know it rains there, but do you get like good thunderstorms with good rumbles and, and lightning? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a nice thunderstorm just just very last night, actually. Yeah, they, they, we get a mixture of both. So it, it's not quite Florida where it's two to four every day, the rain thunderstorm, but it's definitely very common for it to be um, thundering with the rain. And when I was driving home last night we, on the motorcycle with the kids, it was there was a lot of thunder going on. Uh, <laughs> you guys little rain ponchos or something? Definitely. That's, yeah, that's pretty much what we were doing. All right, hey, Joel, so just to clarify for our audience before they get uh, maybe confused and start to think about, hey, so, you know, Troy and Joel at Revive Thoughts are doing rabbis now? Is this the kind of podcast I'm listening to? We want to clarify uh, he had the nickname Rabbi Duncan uh, due to his work that you will talk about here in a few minutes with Jewish people, with the Jewish community in Europe. He himself is not a rabbi. He was not Jewish in any level. Um, so we're not that kind of show. We're not suddenly opening the doors to other faiths or anything like that. That's not what's going on here. Um, but this was a nickname he had simply because of just how much he spent time ministering to uh, the different Jewish communities in Europe. However, something unique about John Duncan, about Rabbi Duncan here, is that he actually was ministering and had begun his ministry before he had yet become a Christian, which he's not the first person we've covered like that, but it is always astounding to me that there are people who are in Christian ministry. Um, it, we've covered a few different ones like that, probably most famously John Wesley, but yet they are not yet Christians. Troy, be honest with me. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I I did not know anything. I had not I had not even heard the name that I remember of John Duncan. Were you familiar with this character before uh, doing research for this episode? Oh, for sure, no. John Rabbi Duncan. Uh, I I definitely don't think I've ever even heard his name. I don't think okay. he's ever come up. Because in I my feel like you're a little bit level. more well-rounded, well-versed in the in the theologians than I am. But uh, <laughs> I, th- I thought if anyone would know his name, it would be you. I'm sure we have listeners out there that are just like, oh yeah, no, he's my favorite. But he's new to Troy and I, and I'm excited to start covering him here. Born in 1798, right in Scotland there. His father was a believer. He was a humble man. He was a shoemaker 
who loved making shoes. School was expensive back then, and so uh, you usually came up in your family trait, and you did what your family trait was. You know, if you were a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. Uh, in this instance, his father was a shoemaker, and he was expected to be a shoemaker by everyone in his family, but uh, he didn't want to be a shoemaker. He wanted he wanted to go to school and, and, and pursue other career paths, and after some time and some convincing, his father finally sent him out to uh, school, and he did excellent in school, and incredibly, he has one of those brains that just latches on to uh, uh, linguistics in particular. He, he learned several different languages over his life. Uh, by the time he died, he, I'm going to count these, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight languages this man could speak. And I don't know about you, Troy, I took two semesters of Spanish in high school that I remember very little of. <laughs> what 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 was your foreign language? Uh, Spanish as well. Three years of Spanish. Uh-huh. I did pretty poorly. Um, I just did not learn language as well in a classroom environment. Mm-mm. But now that I've lived in China and learned lived in Cambodia, I can now tell you with confidence that I don't learn language as well in a non-classroom environment either. <laughs> just in general. So sure. Got to find that right environment for me where I mm. really succeed at learning languages because they... Um, you know, at least had an episode that came out in Martyrs and Missionaries this week where C.T. Studd was just wishing God would just like put the language straight into his brain. And at least and I could really relate to that feeling of like, yeah, this is really hard to learn. Could you just drop it dra- directly into my brain so I don't have to work so hard at it? Yeah. Anyway, John Duncan uh, goes through life. He's he's going through education, going through his schooling, getting degrees. And he's not a believer. Even though we came from a Christian household, he himself was actually quite an outspoken atheist during this time. Uh, some people will speak when, like, you'll hear some people who are atheists, they kind of speak of being an atheist in positive terms. Uh, but a lot of the men on our show who were atheists who become Christians later, even during their periods of atheism, they seem to be depressed because they seem to understand the weight of what they're saying. Like, they're not atheists in a very flippant sense. Um, these are really true believers, but they're so true, they understand how hopeless their condition kind of is. Duncan said while he was an atheist, like we have him writing it down and stuff, that he felt like he was as little as an animal, that he was as worthless as dust, that he basically didn't matter any more than the dog or the chicken, and that what was the point of life? And that was the kind of stuff he was saying, not as a Christian looking back, but during his time as an atheist. So he was a, he was a full believer in that atheism, but it made him feel very hopeless. And a lot of times when people look at Christian or look at history, they'll look at Europe in the 1800s and they'll be like, oh yeah, Europe, 1800s, Christian, you know, continent, um, didn't stop being Christian until like the 1950s or, or something, you know, kind of like that. And that's just not true. Europe, especially in the early 1800s, had really spiritually dried up, although Christianity was, the, you know, it would have been called the quote-unquote religion at the time, although if you were in France at the French Revolution, that, that wasn't really so. Um, but the Reformation, all that stuff had died down. Uh, you'll see an upsurge again happen in uh, revivals in the, like, kind of mid to late 1800s, but that early time of the 1800s, right when the Enlightenment was in full swing, you don't really see Christianity reign supreme on people. And so that's how someone like Duncan, who didn't even believe in God, could have a job in the church at the time. Uh, It was not that, it was just really wasn't that uncommon. And we read about these kind of stories actually quite a bit, where we see these guys going through ministry who are just intellectuals. They can answer things correctly, but there's just not a lot of heart behind it. Duncan, again, is definitely one of those kind of guys. 
But while Duncan was in college, he met a professor who was a real believer, who taught very firmly with just absolute confidence that God was real. And when he prayed at the end of his at the end of his classes, this professor always called God the Great King. And the way he said Great King when he addressed God in prayer was so firm, so sure, so absolute. That it said it caught Duncan's attention. It made him rethink what he believed. That this intelligent professor could so certainly believe in the great king. What was he doing um, questioning? It made him begin to go visit churches, made him to begin reading books. And very soon, he was no longer an atheist, but he had you know, convinced himself of deism. He felt for sure that there was a God. He continued to pretend to be a Christian. He got into a kind of position where he was like a traveling preacher. And he would do that for eight years as a deist, believing in God, not really knowing the God of the Bible personally, but going around preaching and teaching and ministry about this God that he does not yet really know. Yeah, and he would spend these eight years uh, preaching, and again, he's very intelligent, he's very well-spoken. He knows how to communicate uh, very effectively, but spiritually, he did not know God. There was a man that was passing through uh, the town where he was at, a a man named Caesar Milan. And Milan, he had been removed from his own post for preaching and I'm quoting here, too doctrinally. He was a minister in Geneva, Switzerland, the place that Calvin once ministered. Milan, he had not given up, though, and he was still traveling and preaching when he met Duncan. And they had a conversation. And something about this conversation that the two of them had, the way that Milan had told him about the Word of God, it spiritually awoken something in Duncan. Uh, Duncan now converted. He started with this bright, hot passion for God. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe this is an experience you had. But after a few years, he had kind of lost that passion for God. He had a very skeptical nature. If you remember earlier, it took him a long time to believe in God. He was very critical of things. He had a hard time trusting things. And when he becomes a Christian, that doesn't change. But instead of no longer doubting God, he now spent several years kind of inner, inwardly wrestling with, am I actually saved? An assurance of his salvation. For two years, at least, he wrestled with that assurance of his faith. Uh, but eventually it did come to an end. And once it did, he was once again on fire for God. And he was once again certain about what he believed. Um, around this time, too, in his early, he kind of got married a little bit later in life. He got married at the age of, uh, give or take, 41. But two years later, the love of his life, uh, wife, his wife died. And this may have also played into some of, kind of that despair and wrestling he was having uh, in his life. Just kind of a tough, you know, not an easygoing life this guy had. But the whole time he's doing very well in school, he's lecturing, he's doing professorship, he's kind of doing that whole shtick, that whole gig, and he's very good at it. When he graduates, he's got all, you know, all the honors in the right places, has a great doctor of divinity. He should have been a shoe-in for any professorship at any, you know, university. But surprisingly, he put a few applications out, kind of, you know, expected to get something, and no one hired him. He spent over a year without really anything to do, so he kind of studied up on the lives of Jewish people. There was beginning to be this movement of, hey, we need to reach Jewish people for Jesus Christ. We need to go back to Israel. This is the same time period where Robert Murray McShane and Andrew Bonar are going in that direction. And and he's, he's kind of getting swept up in that movement. And when he hears about and sees that there's a Jewish community, a rather large Jewish community in what is now Budapest, but at the time it was just called Pest, um, he feels kind of called 
to go and be a missionary to them over in Hungary, leave what the land he's always known, you know, Scotland, and go over to uh, Hungary instead, learn the language and be a missionary there. Learning language is not probably a problem for him. Uh, and so he decides at the age of 44 to head over and go do that, which, you know, is interesting. Most of these guys that we cover on our show is by the age of 44, they're already, you know, well-established in their first church or whatever. A good amount of and them are, we are see, dead uh, by that point. <laughs> yeah, some of them, is, it's not uh, Oswald Chambers. We can go through yeah. a long list of people who would already be gone and finish their life's work at this point. Yeah, he's only really just finding what he'll be famous for at this age of 44. Yeah, and so he's in Budapest, and his ministry takes off there. He's able to lead several to the Lord uh, during this time, and there's two uh, famous Christians that he was able to lead to the Lord that um, are also noted in history. There was one named Alfred Edersheim and Adolf Sapphire, who were other theologians that also wrote a lot of books and, and left an impact. And so he is, he's his, having this reach and leaving legacy in other people's lives as well. He only serves in Budapest for two years, so not a huge a stint there, but uh, the ministry left a huge impact. And his passion uh, to understand Judaism really came about and, and thrived at this time, so much so that he would end up gaining the nickname Rabbi when he returned to Scotland. Around the age of 47, um, he had this desire to really understand where the Jewish people were coming from uh, and that Jewish culture, and so they, they would call him Rabbi. He spent the rest of his days lecturing and working at different professorships and having an overall large impact on those in the church. Duncan is probably one of the very rare men on our show. Uh, I mean, it's been a while since we've had one who did not write really any books. Um, He loved to speak. He was a very, very good speaker. But he said just when it came to writing, he just didn't feel gifted in that way. Again, we can see he's very gifted with languages, but he wasn't gifted in writing. However, he did have several, uh, like, phrases that we even use. You may have even heard some of these phrases in your own lifetime um, that he's used. Some of them I thought were just kind of interesting. Some of them are a little theological. Some of them are not, but just kind of these little phrases. Uh, one of the phrases he had is, I'm a Christian first. I'm a Catholic as in a part of the Holy Catholic Church second. Um, after that, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a, a Paleo-Baptist, and then I am a Presbyterian fifth, which not, not that you have maybe used that phrase, but this idea of I'm a Christian first and these other things come after it. He was the the first person that we know of who said it like that. Um, he's also one of the first people to make the argument just very, not the first person to make this argument, but to say it simply that either Jesus Christ was a liar, he was either self-deluded, or he was who he said he was. He's not, again, the first person to make that argument, to put it, but to put it basically in one sentence that you could kind of say to an atheist, he was one of the first people to do that. He also had some other fun ones. Um, Every unrenewed or unsaved Arminian is a Pelagian, and every unsaved Calvinist is a fatalist. Again, telling people that it's not so much the Arminianism versus Calvinism that's important, but it's the fact that you know Jesus Christ. All questions as to the how are best answered by a more extended knowledge of the what. So most of the time when people ask how you can do something, what they really are looking for is more interest of what, what it is supposed to be done. Um, and geni- he said this one, too, that I really liked. Genius lies very much in that region where the profound is simple, but the simple becomes profound. The great thoughts of men such as Chalmers are very simply expressed, but only a man of genius could have thought them. Now, please enjoy listening to the sermon, Behold the Lamb of God. 
Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare you the way of Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The hope of Israel has come at last. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And the voice which had sounded by the mouths of all the holy prophets, which had been since the world began, now sounded with more distinctness and more emphasis. While the finger John the precursor pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Look in the first place at what he takes away, the sin of the world. It's not here said sins, but sin. Not sin with some individual of the human race, but the whole world is charged as sinner. No doubt there are multitudes of sins in the world. None but God can number the sins that have been committed since the world was created, and that will be committed while the world still lasts. But even though the sins are many and the sinners who commit them many, there is a principle of unity binding all the sin of the world, as it were, together, the sin of the world, of which the various sins are so many branches and manifestations, are at their root the world's apostasy and alienation from the living God. The two great evils connected going into one, that we have forsaken Jehovah, the fountain of living waters, and have carved out to ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, and the law of God is one, multitudes of commandments, but one in its principle, its principle being love to God and love to all created beings for God's sake. It is one, as flowing all from the same essential purity, justice, and universal moral good, the divine nature. Sin, contrary to this, has a unity. But further, the disclosures which Holy Scriptures make to us will enable us to take some view of the sin of the world. Friends, if we would view this right, we must begin at the beginning, the beginning of the world's sin. There is indeed a different tidings of the world's sin presented among us, and amongst the nations that do not know God by external revelation. But what then? Are we better than they? They are guilty of abominable idolatries, unnatural vices, and horrid cruelties. But in that portion of the world, which was favored with the light of divine truth, the Lord complained, Even among my people are found those wicked men. They even surpass the deeds of the wicked. It would be impossible to reckon up even the particular classes of sin, the selfishness, pride, impurity, injustice, impatience, rancor, malice, helplessness of one another's good, and we were to go descend into the very mires of sin, in the places where it gets unchallenged, sway, and if we could look over and see all the crimes, the iniquities that have been perpetrated since the world began, oh, if we had but a sight of all of Glasgow's sins that occur in just one day, oh, what a terrible sight it would be. All Glasgow would be struck with horror at the sight of her sins. What is the sin of the world like? The number of sins of a race that for 6,000 years has been sinning. What is the actual amount of sin? What then is the nature of people who would cause so much sin? It's the sin of the world. The whole world is in sin. It involves me. It involves you. It involves each individual. We as individuals have our sins, and as an integral part and portion of Adam's posterity are connected to the whole amount of the sin of the world. This looks like an exaggeration. Surely, you'll say, things cannot be so bad as all that, for if they were, we are hopeless. 
there can be nothing for it but to lie down in despair. Even worse, some may be tempted to say, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If our iniquities are upon us and we work away in them, how should we then live? Let us relinquish the hope and sell ourselves to work wickedness. Now, if we look through the world, we will not find anything to take away its sin, or even anything to restrain or keep in its sin. Nothing there to cleanse it in whole or even in part. Nothing to subdue it. It's only capable of waxing worse and worse, working itself into grosser developments through an endless eternity. Nothing in the world to take away the world's sin. What a pitiable world. But behold, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. He comes into this world from the God against whom this world transgressed. And what may the world expect that he comes to do? When God sent his son into the world, on what other errand could it be but to condemn the world? But no, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Oh, what a visitor. How rightly might John point to him. How rightly may we all listen to John's short but true declaration. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. There is a reference here, no doubt, to the immaculate purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But there is a special reference to sacrifice, God's sacrificial lamb. There may be a double reference here, or rather perhaps a common reference running through the whole, but it is seen in two cases. First, in the case of Abraham, when God commanded him to offer up his son Isaac. The ram caught in the thicket was sacrificed instead and Isaac was spared. This is a type of salvation by the substitution of the Lord Jesus. So he received Isaac from the dead in a way. The other reference is to the lamb of the Passover. What did God teach there? That Israel deserved the same punishment with the Egyptians? That the destroying angel will not find Goshen better than Egypt? But God would spare his people whom he had set apart for himself. You, See the blood of a spotless lamb testifying that you are sinners deserving to die and that you are spared of my mercy. And so the destroying angel did not destroy the firstborn of Israel. Now here he is, by way of eminence, God's lamb, the lamb that he provided for a burnt offering, not as a symbol, but the actual, not the shadow, but the substance. Jesus is God's lamb as he is the one provided of God. God looked on the lamb to take away the sin of the world. God looked out for a lamb for himself. The world had not a lamb to cleanse its sin, not to speak of the necessity of a divine person to atone for sin, for infinite evil of it. The world had not an innocent person, but God provided a lamb. He laid upon one that was mighty. He found out David, his servant, the opposite David. It was Jehovah's own finding. He provided a lamb for burnt offering. And then what? What was his provision? We read in this chapter that he who is called the Lamb of God is the Word of God, which in the beginning was with God and was God, the life and the light of men, the creator of all things, by whom all things were made, God's only Son, the only begotten of the Father, the fellowship of the Lord of hosts, the brightness of the Father's glory, and the express image of his person. He laid help upon one mighty to save. But when we consider the Lamb of God, we consider him as God-man, Emmanuel. 
which he was from all eternity by covenant designation and covenant engagement. We are sent then to Bethlehem to see this great thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us, to see the child born, the son given, whose name is the mighty God. For as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, it was necessary that he himself also take part of the same, and that he might be goal, a kinsman redeemer. He is the Lamb of God, pure and spotless, for such alone could bear away sin, meek and gentle, led to the slaughter, willing, resigned, submitting, adoring that pure and holy justice which burst upon his head. He is the Lamb of God now accepted. The Lord has accepted his burnt offering. It has been offered up, and the fire from heaven did descend on it. The Lord's fire coming down to consume showed that the Lord was pleased with the victim, that it was holy and acceptable to him, such as anything could be. He's the Lamb of God. The Lamb whom God, having provided and accepted, now exhibits and exhibits to us sinners. He says of him, For we have greater testimony than that of John. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wherever this gospel is preached, the Father shows him as his Lamb. He takes away the sin of the world. He takes the sin away. Oh, wondrous transaction this is, that God's Lamb takes away the world's sin. He takes away the world's sin, first by substitution, the first and original transference of our sin, if we could see it, is not either in the day of our pardon or in the day of atonement, but in the day of the everlasting covenant when Christ engaged to substitute himself for the sinners of mankind, given for him by the Father, when he put his soul in their soul's stead, and had their guilt transferred to him and laid upon him. The Son of God became the answer for sin, and having it upon him in the way of obligation to bear it, it came upon him in the way of actual demand. God came and laid the iniquities upon him, the whole amount of all sin that has been or ever will be forgiven, the whole sin of all that have been and will be saved, which would have borne them with the rest of the world down to everlasting destruction. That was inflicted on the Lamb of God. He was able to bear it. He was willing to bear it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. Then Christ, by bearing sin, so bears sin away. Like the one of the goats which was led out to bear the sin of Israel away, the Lamb of God bears away the sin of the world. There is redemption now through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. He has power on earth to forgive sin. He bears it away, actually takes it off from the shoulders of individuals on the day of regeneration, conversion, and justification. And we must just remark that he bears not only, or takes only away the guilt, but actually the sin itself, the direct end of his atonement, indeed, is cleansing of the guilt of sin. But the result of cleansing is consecration and obedience by the sprinkling of the blood. The blood which shed makes atonement to God. The same applied to sinners purges them and consecrates them to be a royal priesthood and peculiar people. Christ washes us from our sin in his own blood. How are we to understand these words, takes away the sin of the world? Is there not sin in the world still? Is it not a world that lies in the wicked one? Are there not those that die? Is the whole world then actually saved? 
No, my brothers, it is necessary that we consider this matter as Scripture teaches us, looking neither to the right hand nor to the left, but looking to the rule of God's holy word. It teaches us specialness in the matter. And if it were not for this, where could our confidence be in beholding the atonement and looking at the cross of Christ if it did not actually save? How vain that universal grace that no certain bliss bestow, which leaves the universal race exposed to universal woe. It is not that we want to confine, but that we are called by the scripture to exalt the certainty and efficacy of the death of Christ. The death of Christ was not only sufficient to this purpose, that sinners believing are pardoned and have life everlasting, but it was worthy of its own application and therefore ensure salvation in God's good time of all that believe. But then there is a universal aspect in this and other texts. Behold the Lamb of God. We need not dwell on the comparative narrowness of the Old Testament sacrifices and the still narrower prejudices of the Jews with reference to the calling of the Gentiles when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He meant it not for the Jews only, but for the sins of the whole world. But particularly, we may remark that the atonement and the salvation by atonement of the Lord Jesus bears a reference and aspect upon the particular condition and state of every child of mankind. Every man is in the world's sin completely. In regard to anything of vital importance between men, there is no difference, for all have sinned. Every man in the world needs this Lamb of God for the taking away of his sin, and the gospel is also just as much fitted for me as for you, and for you as for me. Christ and his sacrifice meet your case as they meet mine. The sinner's needs correspond to what is in the sacrifice of Christ, and what is in the sacrifice of Christ corresponds to the sinner's need. Again, there is a universal extent of command with regard to its proclamation. We don't say, and it's the church's fault in a great measure that this command in its full extent has been obeyed. How many still sit in darkness and in the shadow of death externally? But there is a universality of reach in the command, go and preach the gospel to every creature. There is a command of God that wherever there is a sinner, there will be a setting forth of the Lamb of God with a command to that soul to behold the Lamb of God. Then, as there is a universality of command to proclaim this gospel to the whole world and every creature in it, so wherever it is proclaimed, it contains a free and unfettered and universal and special invitation, universal to all, special to each, to look and be saved. It warrants my conscience to cast the weight of my guilt upon the atonement of Christ, to cast the shameful depravity of my nature on the fountain open for sin and for uncleanness, to cast my whole state as a sinner on Christ the Savior set before me in the gospel. There is this universality which every creature needs. It needs to be preached to every creature, and wherever it is preached, it contains a full and free warrant to every individual to take himself to the Lamb of God as the only Savior, and with the assurance that he will not be cast out. Now the Lamb of God is not only set before us this day in the preached gospel, but he is about to be set for us also in sacramental symbol. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? God is saying, 
at his table and in reference to it as he is saying in the gospel, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Oh, of what use is the gospel when we hear the words, men's words, and of what use are sacraments when we see only the bread and wine? God clothes eternal truths in human words, formed by human breath, and written and stamped by men's hands on material paper. And he connects them also with outward and visible signs in the sacraments. The word is nothing without the Spirit. The symbols are nothing unless we see Jesus. We are by nature all of us of the world. We are all in the world's sin. We've been speaking about the world's sin, but oh, friends, it is my sin. I am one of this world, and I am in its sin. The world is all sinful together. But sinners must be saved out of it one by one. As for the application of salvation, sin is taken away from sinners of that world individually. You and I then, being sinners and in the world's sin, we would need to be beholding the Lamb of God. And oh, that we had these objects together in our minds this day. The one would not distract the other. The world's sin and our individual sin and the Lamb of God. Oh, to see it all clearly and to see the Lamb of God highest and brightest. To behold our sin so that its dark face may commend us to the glorious one, to feel our own sin, that we, in reference to the world's sin in us individually, may find what has to be taken away, and then to look to him who does take sin away. That way sin may not be small in our view, but the Lamb of God more precious, in seeing his merit transcending our demerit infinitely and absorbing it, and accordingly, seeing and knowing and believing that in our case sin has abounded, but that in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, grace has superabounded, seeing that sin has reigned through death over us, but that grace reigns through righteousness for eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. O oh, in prospect of the table of the Lord, you must be trying to get an appropriate hold of this text. And if you ask me how, O oh, friends, if I understand it, it is not by thinking that I am an elect man, a regenerated man, an effectively called man. It is not by adding anything about myself to the gospel held out to me individually as a sinner, but by taking hold of the whole gospel in that word which touches me, that word about sin, then I cannot get near the Lamb of God. It may be, but sin, I am near it, and I will go and confess my sin before God with my finger upon that word sin, and keep it there before the eyes of God and of the Lamb. So in similar demonstrations of the gospel, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners, that's it. That's the point in the text that God is holding out to me, that I may get a hold of the whole text. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Lost. That's the word. Take it individually. And if you cannot put your finger upon Christ, put it upon a sin in a text where God has put sin and Christ together. Let me challenge you to exercise the growing of your faith. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by John Rayner. John has a great daily devotional podcast called Pre-Game Proverb. We really encourage you guys to go check that. If you, li- if you liked the sermon, you want to hear more of what he's up to, 
go check out. You can search for Pregame Proverb or you can search for his website, pregameproverb.blog, uh, to follow up with him. If you also like today's episode, don't hesitate to tell a friend. If you have a friend in mind, maybe doesn't know about Revive Thoughts, or maybe they're a subscriber but they haven't listened to a while, if you like this episode, tell them to check out this episode. Maybe get back in that Revive Thoughts routine. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revived Thoughts. <laughs>